Hello you, it's me, Graham Norton here. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. Let's see what we've got in store this week. Well, the lovely Fern Britain tells us all about her latest novel, The Good Servant. Tina Brown takes us behind the palace gates in her new book, The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. And Jenny Eclair has been busy, busy, busy. She's here to chat about uh, the new extended dates for her Tour 60, as well as the new series of Drawers Off on Channel 4 and her upcoming book, The Writing on the Wall. We're bringing Guest the Guest back for a spin and we've had some very interesting dilemmas for you this weekend in Graham's Guide. Let's go to Maria and see what you've been writing in about. Darling, I don't want to make you laugh. Don't make me laugh. I was trying to get the high notes to the cranberries and I could not. My career (laughs) is over as an opera singer, Graham. Oh, no. How are you? How are you? There were were concerned texts about your injuries. Um, Well, I I am finally, the nation will be delighted to know, an appendix-free zone after 20 months and many antibiotics. They are gone. I've been in the hospital and they have been taken out. Um, but sadly, not in the keyhole way that I, you know, dainty, dainty, Graham. Nice. Keyhole had to go full major surgery. So my oh. bikini modeling career, she is a thing of the past, Graham. Do you look like you've been in a shark attack? I do, yes. I look like I've perhaps been in, you know, one of those pellet guns. I think a lot of that. I don't know what I look like, actually, because it's all covered in dressings. And I don't feel up to it, Graham. I don't feel up to the inspection. <laughs> Are you home now? Are you home at least? I am home. Yeah, I mean, I've got nothing to talk to you about apart from the inside of a sort of big curtained hospital ward. Although I did go to the Lake District before this travesty <laughs> fell upon me. I'm sounding like Hinge and Brackett. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be cheery and it's just making me sound mad. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, no, but I'm concerned. I'm concerned. So can you do stairs or are you, uh, you know, cloistered downstairs with Dolly the dog? Um, no, I'm cloistered upstairs with Dolly the dog and people come along and bring me sweetmeats and put my washing in the washing machine and things like that. Lots of lovely Hastings folk. Thank you very much um, for all your assistance. And Dolly is being taken out and all of that. So no need to call social services or the RSPCA. But no, it's all a bit, you know, one is all a bit crook and a bit physically defective. And also as anaesthetic does things to your brain. So I may not be as sharp as I normally am, Graham. No, Maria. <laughs> Say it's not true. <laughs> don't make me laugh. That's really ouchy. Ow, don't make me laugh. Um, I loved. I did love watching a bit of the... We haven't done any of that. I loved watching how there is certainly an age um, limit for young boys to go and watch people in plastic outfits doing wavy things repeatedly in front of you. Prince Louis, uh, the star of the show of the Royal Platitubes, um, being the naughtiest boy in the school. And everybody had, he given, had he been given a lot of sugary drinks, do you think? Yes, I believe so. I believe there was a lot of sugar to be had. And he's four. You know, I mean, it's it's a tough gig. Boris Johnson was behind him. It was a tough gig for him to stay awake and not behave like a very naughty boy. Um, but with the little boy of four, you know, it's too long, two and a half hours with wavy people in front of you. Yes, I mean, What's... I'm fi- I'm 59. I think I might have been a bit... <laughs> I think I might have been a bit twitchy in my chair by the end of it. Yeah. I certainly nodded off, Graham. Let's be honest, I think a few of us did. But what a lovely weekend, all in all. And um, I just, I must just thank my surgeon, the um, wonderful Andrew Aldrich, and 
<coughs> sorry, and Monica and Mateo and Gio and Elvis and all the lovely people who looked after me. God save the NHS, all of that. Um, because I was thinking last night, 100 years ago, I would have been brown bread, Graham. And now, but you must be relieved, Maria, because this has been, as you say, it's been going on for, 20, you know, nearly two years. So it must oh, be a huge relief say. to have it over. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's great. And I, it's not an experience I want to uh, repeat going into hospital particularly. Um, but, uh, yeah, these things happen. You get a bit older. You get uh, The good thing is it teaches you to stay fit, stay as healthy as you can. Then you can kind of, you know, maneuver around these things as and when they happen. Yes, but hopefully they, uh, I'll be up and running next week. You're why you will. Um, look, we're so glad you're feeling uh, better, Maria, and I'm really glad that it's finally being solved. Virgin Radio. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. OK, I think we're on safer ground with this one, Graham, and I quite like this problem because it is indeed the little things in life that drive us mad. Dear Graham and Maria, I own a flat and have been renting out two spare rooms for the past five years or so. It's always been pretty relaxed. Mm -hmm. And the current tenants have all been here for the last two years. One of them recently announced that they're moving out, which is fine. But has started <laughs> packing up bits from the kitchen, bathroom and living room that either I've paid for as the landlord or we've paid for from the shared flat joint account that we set up for utilities and shared essentials. This has ranged from crockery to something as basic as bottles of bleach. I wasn't too bothered when it was just a couple of items, but my other housemate has come to me because they are bothered about it, having heard quite the list of things that our housemate plans on taking. I tried to chat to the departing housemate about it casually when it was just the two of us, and they got really defensive and angry, saying that they'd paid part of the money for these things, so they would be taking them as it wasn't part of the rent and was additional spending. I now don't really know how to approach this. It's quite a weird situation. And I don't want to ask the existing housemate to pay the share for anything new that we have to buy, as I think it's quite unfair. Do I try to enforce landlord rules on my lodger or suck it up and soak up the costs of buying new things for the flat? And that is from Dan in Streatham. Dan in Streatham, well, you know, you say everyone's been happy there for five years or so since you've been renting and these tenants have been there for two years. It all sounds a little bit box-ticky to me, if I'm honest with you. But maybe that's been working for you and everybody puts their money in to buy bleach and essentials, etc. Um, I'm not sure that the other housemate has approached you to say that they're concerned <laughs> about the items that are being taken because they probably have a life. And they've heard quite the list of things that... Uh, are going to not exist. So, Dan, I'm going to say to you, in no uncertain terms, even though it's maddening, you are making money from this because you're charging rent to people. And so bottles of bleach and household goods and keeping this flat nice for all of you and the harmonious atmosphere for all of you is not worth the effort of enforcing landlord rules, whatever they may be. So I'm guessing you have to soak it up buy some new squidgy mop sponges, buy some new bleach and buy another crockery bowl to eat your cornflakes from. I don't know if Graham will agree with me on this. He may have other ideas. Graham? Dan's an idiot. Uh, there, I've said <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me laugh. Don't make me laugh. Ooh. 
Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'll back it down. I'll back it down. No. He, no, here's the thing. Dan was a, Dan has been very foolish because if you're going to be a landlord, you, you need to be a landlord. Whereas Dan has kind of been treating these people like flatmates. So, oh, let's all chip in and buy a, a new saucepan. No, yeah. Dan, you're the landlord. You buy a saucepan. Exactly. Utilities, yes. Utilities, everyone chips in because you're living there, da-da-da-da. But stuff, stuff, somebody owns it, somebody uh, buys it, you know, and then it's theirs. Whereas you've, you know, so that I kind of think the other flat might might be a bit annoyed because he's thinking, hang on, I own a third of that Le Creuset casserole dish. So <laughs> I doubt there's it? a Le Creuset casserole dish there, Graham. Very <laughs> no, much. I think otherwise it's budget saucepans all the there, way. There'll be, be lawyers involved. Um, so <laughs> I I think, Dan, what you need to do, I think Maria's right, you just you do have to suck this up. I put it down to experience. And in the future, understand that in a way, you are running a business here. You know, you are you're getting your mortgage paid by renting out these two rooms. Hopefully your flat flat in Streatham, I'm sure, is whizzing up in value so you are making you are making money hand over fist so the least you can do is shell out for a new saucepan and a bottle of bleach so uh i i mean this guy also the other person who's awful is the guy you've been renting a room to uh he i mean really if you can be bothered packing a bottle of bleach i know but he's annoyed as well that's what I mean. That's why I like this letter, because it's the little things. He's annoyed that he's had to pay out for these things because he obviously read the enforced landlord rules and thought, wait a minute, a lot of this that I'm shelling out for on a weekly basis really should be provided in the flat. So yes. it's a moot point. And I would say, Dan in Shretton, before you get another person in to avoid this happening again, make a list. These are the things we don't pay for. These are the things that I provide. Saucepans, crockery, spoons, knives, forks, etc. I mean, you know, the things that are used on a comestibles, a daily basis, yes, of course, we must all pay. But there should be a certain list of things there. And then you can get your inventory out, Dan, in Streatham, when they leave and tick things off in a tick box way and you'll be very happy. Yes, and also just be a proper landlord. Don't be a flatmate. That's the bottom line here. Just you Well, know. you should be able to have it all if you're nice and you're not picky like Dan is. And, you, you know, you're looking to make pennies where a bottle of bleach costs. 99p, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, they're doing you a favour. They're paying your mortgage, as Graham said. So be grateful that you haven't got serial killers or mad people there. And yes, and so they haven't you... set fire to your flat or anything. Exactly. That's all to come. <laughs> yeah, I think so. With this sort of attitude, Graham, I think Dan is on <laughs> tricky ice here. Mind you, the annoyed person who's moving out, when they should have said something, was when he was asked to pay a third of the cost of a new saucepan. So he should have gone, well, hang on, who's going to own that saucepan when I leave? You know, yes. he should have said it then, not well, done this weird passive-aggressive thing. Boat. They didn't want to rock the boat then, did they? And they were thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to use the saucepan. But now they're crossed because they've totted it all up and thought, just get a basic list of things that you have to have in a flat, Dan, and don't ask anybody to pay for those things because you as a landlord, you have certain responsibilities. Yeah, Squidgy I agree. soap things and cleaning, etc. Yes, they do come out of utility shared sort yeah. of... And it'll be quite hard to move that piano out, I imagine. But there you go. You'll go. <laughs> that uh, they paid for. Would you mind spending a third on this grand piano? I think it'll make a huge difference. 
Oh, the streets of Streatham, alive to the sound of my music. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, have you got advice for Dan or Jade? And my favourite responder will get a bottle of Mad Fish Sauvignon Blanc, courtesy of Waitrose. Michael in Whitechapel. Oh, Michael back again. I think Dan should get all tenants in future to chip in for a cleaner, gardener, private chef, harpist, waitstaff, dog walker, etc. Ensure all staff bring their own uniform or equipment. Everyone's happy. Yeah, I get your point, Michael. <laughs> he's, he's not being a very realistic landlord, is he? No. Uh, Sarah is in Cornwall. Hindsight is a wonderful gift, Dan. How much are we actually talking about here? Assuming this stuff is used, part used, what real value does it have? Place the mugs, crockery, etc. taken on the cheap, courtesy of your local charity shop. And remember, going forward, not to have shared property that you are not willing to lose. And that is so true, Sarah. I mean, why would you have shared property that you're not willing to lose? Uh, tell the annoyed remaining tenant you're going to replace these items if they make a list for you. It'll give them a sense of control, which is, which is at what's at the root of their irritation. When they hand the list over, Mention what everyone, including the new tenant, will be expected to pay for in the future to save any further upset. Then buy the missing items and move on. That's from Cleo in Rochford. I'm going to give the bottle of Madfish Sauvignon Blanc to Sarah in Cornwall. Graham's Guide. There we go. Yes, Take a letter, please. Good. Dear, uh, Gra- no. Dear Graham and Maria. Shush. <laughs> Dear Graham and Maria. My best friend and I moved in together about five months ago. And it's both our first times living away from home. At first, it was absolutely great. We've been friends since school. And while we both got different interests, we've always got on really well. So spending time together came really naturally. And we're pretty good at reading each other. Or so I thought. About a month ago, he went home for a week. Up until then, everything was as usual. We were hanging out every other evening. But there was no pressure or tension. Just doing our own thing. But... Since he came back, it's been really weird. We've not really spent any time together. He's been really abrupt with me and seems frustrated all the time. He's been working from home in his room, slams his door on the way out in the evening and gets back late without saying a word. It's really unlike him and I'm worried. I've tried talking to him, but he doesn't seem to want to. And I don't want to be patronising. I'm just not sure whether something has happened at home or at work at all but it's really unusual for him to not talk to me about what's on his mind. What do you think I should do? And that is from Ben in Portsmouth. Oh, Ben in Portsmouth, that's a difficult, difficult situation because it was all going so well. And as you say, you know each other, you can read each other, which is why you can read that something is wrong. Now, I don't know if it happened when he was at home, but that seems to be the scenario. And if he's not talking to you, that is doubly frustrating because what can you do if someone doesn't want to talk? I mean, clearly there is something wrong, but he doesn't want to share it with you. Now, I would think sometimes because you're in your little bubble of two in your flat, what about finding a mutual friend, of which I'm sure you have many, and inviting them round for, you know, pizza and having a chat with a third party involved so that they can, not that they can resolve anything, but so they can slightly assess the situation and he may open up if it's not just you two. Is it something to do with you? I don't know. But, you know, he, he doesn't seem to want to tell you, but will he be a little more effusive 
with a third party there that can kind of ease the tension because it sounds really tense at the moment. I mean, it's so tough. I, I, I don't know. Could you get in touch with his family and find out if anything is all right? That's going kind of over his head, but you don't really want to do that either. Graham, what, what do you think? I'm a bit stumped. I know it is really tricky. I feel like maybe the thing that's upsetting him is something he feels he can't share. So did he get news about his parents' health when he was at home or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing? Because it's, it's, it's like he's shut down and that makes me think it's a secret, whatever this thing is that's, that's bugging him. And that doesn't need to be uh, a bad thing, just means to be, you know, a, a, maybe it's just a private thing. Uh, I, I mean, all you can do in a situation like this, I think, is make it clear that you're, you are available. I mean, one of the good things about what you're talking about, having someone over, is then whenever you see him next, you can say, oh, you know, Duda said no, you seemed a bit under the weather or Duda seemed, said you seemed a bit quiet the other night. Yes. And it, it might provoke some sort of reaction. What you don't want to be is a nag. You don't want to become another problem in his life where every time he comes through the door, you're there going, OK. Uh, just uh, that won't help. Yes, that is annoying. I mean, it may be that whatever he did find out at home, he's currently processing and that, that he will tell you um, as and when. But if it is a family secret or somebody's poorly or whatever. Or a divorce. Maybe his parents are getting divorced yes, or something. Yes. But, you know, it's the odd thing. It's the one person we, that probably would be able to help is your flatmate who you've known forever. Um, and yet you don't quite know how to broach the subject or you don't think it's about Ben in particular, Graham. Is that is there anything in this letter giving you that sort of feeling? I don't think so, because, you know, what happened when you were away? Did, you know, did you change all the furniture while he was gone? Did you, you know, paint the paint the flat while you were away? Did you throw out everything in the fridge? You know, I, you, I think Ben would have... Ben doesn't seem an idiot. I think he'd have figured out, oh, I, I guess he doesn't like that I did this. So I don't think it's that, unless he discovered something about Ben when he was back home. But, I, you know... Ben doesn't seem to think that. No. Also, then you would say that. You got, you know, you would say, I can't believe I'm sharing a flat with you when actually you did this to me in the past and blah, 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 blah. Yes, no, yes. So I think I think it's something that's going on in the in the friend's life. And uh, like I say, all you can really do is uh, ask a couple of times or, you know, as you were saying... Maybe leave a letter on the kitchen table or a little card on the kitchen table saying, you know, I'm, I miss you. Miss our chats. Um, I'm here for you. And, um, you know, if there's anything I can help to resolve, let me know because I'm your mate, mate type of thing. Yes. I mean, maybe an email might be better because you don't want that letter to be lying on the kitchen counter for days. (laughs) Just sort of looking at you when you're boiling the kettle. So I, I would, yeah, I think maybe an email, then you can open it privately and, yes, there's less, yes, there's less glare on it, I think. Um, but Ben, I, do, I must say, I do think you're a lovely friend because um, you something needs to happen and you know that your friend is hurting and you yeah. know that he's in trouble and you, you want to help. I, I hope the listeners, and I'm sure they will, will have some good advice for Ben. Cleo in Rochford says, Ben... 
do nothing other than continue to be your normal self without judgment. This is how to be supportive of your friend who is clearly going through something intensely private. He'll tell you when it's right for him. Hang in there. Uh, Paul in Keyingham. Ben's friend clearly wants help. Slamming doors and displaying altered behaviour is a cry for help. Do something kind, such as make dinner, try to break the silence, tell him how much he means to you and that you'll help when he needs it. But don't push too hard. And that it's such a difficult balancing act, that, isn't it? Because, you know, if somebody... If, if you're going through something and somebody goes, da-da, I made you a dinner, I think your first reaction might be to push away and push back and kind of go, I don't want to sit with you and I don't want to eat this because I know you're going to prod me and ask me questions and I, I don't want that. I don't know. I don't know what to do for the best. Uh, Tracy in Sandback says, it's probably a niggle or habit that he's mentioned to his family and they've agreed and said he needs to sort it out, but he hasn't got the guts to confront it. Maybe he owes his friend money that he's forgotten about and the friend is dwelling on it. So I'd message and say, look, I've noticed you've not been yourself recently. Is is it something I've done? It'll be something fairly minor. If living together isn't working, then you need to confront it and discuss how to move forward. And actually, I'm not sure you're right, Tracy, that it is something to do with Ben. But I think that's a good way in. If you're going to go, look, I noticed you've been a bit off. I, You know, none of my business. Can I just ask this? Is it to do with me? And and then that's, it opens it up because then Ben can either say no, in which case he might say a bit more, or he'll say, or the, the flatmate rather, will say, uh, yes, actually it is Ben and this is the problem. So that might be a good way in. Uh, Gary Magleton, ooh, in Norwich, full name, has Ben actually asked him what is wrong? Yes, he has. I think his friend just wants him to ask and is getting more annoyed because he doesn't. I mean, I I, th- I, I agree with the, whoever said that thing, I think it was Paul, about the slamming doors and stuff, is clearly asking for help. But it's not a very clever way to ask for help. The best way to ask for help is to actually ask. So uh, already Ben is being very nice and, and wanting to help. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Right, uh, I love a guest that doesn't need an introduction, and we've got one now. <laughs> it's Fern Britton. Oh, lovely Fern. How are you? I'm absolutely fine, Graham. Thank you. I'm quite relieved because for a moment there, I thought I was going to be in vision for the socials, as you say, down with the kids. <laughs> but I'm looking like a Saturday morning wreck. So I'm very pleased <laughs> that you can't see me. <laughs> uh, and I'm quite pleased you can't see me. So that, that makes two of us. Oh, That's great. God. Oh, good. I mean, I did. I just received a lovely bouquet of flowers from the publishers for the book, which, of course, is why I'm here. And I thought, right, I better stick that in the back of shot because at least that looks good. You could have hidden. You could have sat behind the bunch of flowers. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh God! Uh, so the book, the book, the book came out on on Thursday in hardback. The Good Servant is what it's named, and this is a, a kind of a departure for you. You haven't written a book like this before, have you? No, no, it actually, I mean, I actually had to work with facts, which, um, you know, as a journalist, you do, but I haven't done that for about 10 years. So I had to do some research. I read, I read, I don't know, about a dozen books and biographies and diaries of people around in the 1930s and 40s, and they were around the royal family or in the royal family. And um, so I've written this book about, yeah, I'm sure you've heard of her, Marion Crawford, who you know, knows I, Crawford. Here's the weird thing, Fern, I had never heard of her 
And then really? I got your... I'd never heard of her. Then I got your book. And then after noon, after 12 o'clock today, I'm talking to Tina Brown. You just got the Palace Papers. Yes, which and, is hot uh, stuff. And mm. Marion Crawford crops up in there. Yes, she's, she's actually quite a big figure. But uh, because she was with our Queen and Princess Margaret from the ages they were six and almost two. And so she was their governess and she kind of shaped, I'm certain she shaped the Queen's outlook on life. The Queen had a lot of people, of course, putting input in. But Marion took her out on the bus and on the tube and into Woolworths and all those normal things because she knew that the Queen and Princess Margaret would never be able to just go to the beach and have an ice cream and paddle. They'd never be able to do it. So she tried very hard to give them a bit of normality and she shaped them through the abdication. Suddenly little Princess Elizabeth, the daughter of the um, Duke of York, uh, was going to be queen you know that that was a big one and through the war and she was with her right up until prince charles was born and then she was tricked i believe which is what, what the book is all about she was tricked into saying a few nice little anecdotes about the princesses for little articles to go into newspapers and magazines in america to boost the royal family's popularity over there because after the war the americans were a bit uh, we'd really like you to come over and thank us. So she was chosen to put these little things in. And she said, yeah, I'll do that as long as my name isn't attached and as long as the Queen approves. And uh, anyway, she was tricked. She signed a contract and suddenly a book called The Little Princesses by Marion Crawford was published to great acclaim and worked to treat in America and the UK to to improve popularity of the royal family. But she was chucked out, considered to have kissed and told and the iron curtain fell the drawbridge went up and she the only time she realized that it happened was when she didn't get a christmas card from the queen so she lived her life after that very lonely very wealthy the book got her a lot of money but very lonely and sad and i want i want her reputation restored i think she was we ought to understand she wasn't she didn't do it out of malice she did it out of love and when you say, you know, you're working with, with facts, how how many facts are there, if you know what I mean? You know, or, mm. or how, how much did you have to conjecture and imagine what had happened? Yeah, a lot of it is fact. I hope I've got all of that right. But of course, situations and conversations, um, I had to make up events. I had to make up, for instance, I don't know how Marion found her husband, so I've made that up. Um, I don't know all the conversations that went on curiously, between her and the Queen Mother and the Queen and the King and all of those things. I don't know. But an awful lot, when I cross-referenced all these books that I read, which were so interesting and so exciting, I could sort of pick out what was factual and what wasn't. Curiously, The Little Princesses, the book she that had her name on it, may not be entirely accurate, accurate and factual because the, the two American journalists, they were publishers of the Ladies' Home Journal in the States, very well-selling magazine. They were also very good at getting people's copy and making a lot of it up themselves. So we just don't know. She's a curious and, and mysterious figure. If she's got living family, living relatives around now, I'd love to hear from them to see if they um, think this is correct or not. But 
the her solicitor and the family that you just can't get anything from anybody. I even wrote to the Royal Archives to say, "Is there anything you have uh, about uh, Baron Crawford?" And she, this woman wrote back nicely saying, "Yes, can I ask you what it's for?" <laughs> so I told her, and that again the drawbridge went up. <laughs> What's it for? Oh, no, no, we don't. <laughs> yes, nothing, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, because I was going to ask you if there were any um, surviving family members, but you you don't know. No, she didn't have children. She was with the Queen and Princess Margaret all that time. And when she finally married, she was 39. She married a... a she didn't make a good marriage. It wasn't nice. I think he was after the money. Um, but she... Um, she sort of gave up her opportunity to have a family, everything for the royal family. And I'm not anti-royalist, I'm not. I think that what happened was those men in grey suits suddenly shut down, you know, and told the royal and family, what, don't... And what happened? Because, you know, she was such a dutiful servant to the royal family. She, she wouldn't have done yeah. anything to upset them. Um, no. And I, I know you say she was tricked, but the... the when did the royal family change their mind about her writing these articles and things? Um, it was when it started to really happen because the someone in the Foreign Office had been spoken to by these journalists in America, Beatrice and Bruce Gould, who were, you know, strange. I mean, can you imagine a journalist who would want to write a lot of tr lies? Unbelievable. Anyway, they I were know, unscripted. Incredible. <laughs> dreadful. Um, it suddenly became something that the Queen who we know as the Queen Mother, the Queen, um, she may have nodded and said, yes, I think that's okay, as long as your name isn't mentioned and it's all very simple and nice and fluffy. And uh, so Crawford said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And then when the things started to be read and the manuscript landed on the Queen's desk, our Queen Mother's desk, she did an enormous U-turn. And um, I think perhaps she'd mentioned to the King, because I think she was trying to be helpful to the King, you know, hey, this will be good. When I think she mentioned it to the King, who was known for rages because of his frustration with his uh, his stutter and all of those things I think he might have been very angry and she quickly went oh no dear it's fine I shall write to everybody and say we don't want that but it was too late and isn't it weird that the royal family never seem to learn this lesson that every time they play with you know letting the media in a little bit it mm -hmm. always it always goes wrong we've seen I it know. so many times I know it, it doesn't it doesn't and you know, the Jubilee is an absolute example of how wonderfully it does go when it wants to. Yeah. But as soon as a, a member of the royal family decides to do an open interview uh, and behave like an ordinary human being and answer things as truthfully as they can, or some of them do, um, it, uh, yeah, it backfires. But it still leaves us with a lot to talk about, whether you hate them or love them or you're somewhere in the pit between, it still is a conversation that you have with somebody. So I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I, I think occasionally either they or the black suits, the grey suits, have an appalling judge of character. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein, I mean, um, Jimmy Savile. You know, why do they let them in? Madness. It it is extraordinary. You've had such huge success with your uh, novel set in Cornwall. What was this like working with history? Mm -hmm. Did you like having kind of the, the scaffolding of facts and knowing where the story was going to end up? Or did it, did it feel a bit constraining? No, it felt really comforting to know that I was on a path that was 
coming together, the more and more and more I read, um, the more I began to live in that world, which sounds weird, but and begin to began to know Marion better, although she's still kind of very enigmatic. But um, I did enjoy working with facts and I'm, it gave me a thirst to do a bit more. I did A-level history and flunked it, of course, because I was too busy enjoying myself. But I got to the stage <laughs> where I thought, I thought um, oh, you know, I could go and do a history degree now. You know, when you feel ready to do something, I wouldn't have been able to achieve it when I was 18, 19, that's for sure. But um, I really enjoyed going back into into the, the pleasures of history. Absolutely. And when did this happen? When did the story kind of grab you and you kind of thought, oh, hang on, that might be a novel, given even that, you know, you haven't done this before. You know, you've been yes. in your in your own imagination up until now. Yes, I, I've been thinking about it since I was about 25, 30 when I first read it, because I was a bit of a strange teenager and was fascinated by the royal family even then. And I used to write to Prince Charles if I was doing a school play, you know, could you, would you like to come and see this? <laughs> Obviously, he's got a letter back saying, no, he can't. He's busy. But um, <laughs> so I was rather sort of fascinated from the beginning and, and immersed myself in lots of, of reading of the royal family, um, unknowingly taking on all this information. And then about 12 years ago, I thought, that would make a good book. But I was at the beginning of my uh, writing career and I didn't have the confidence at that stage to think I could put it together. And then lockdown happened and I thought, okay, let's do it. So it's done. There we go. And of course, perfect timing with the Jubilee. Yeah, and honestly, I know people go, oh yeah, marketing, that was clever. <laughs> when I started it, no one had that in their mind. <laughs> Not at all. It just it just turned up, so that was very lucky. And it's given me the thirst to do a bit more. So there's, I've got a Cornwall book in my head now that will come hopefully next year. And then the next one after that is going to be um, hopefully a story of a woman that we all grew up with but no one's really delved into. Mm. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and tell me this, uh, I'll, I'll probably be asking Tina Brown this question as well, but uh, tell me this, last weekend, you know, looking at those Platinum Jubilee celebrations, and you kind of thought, mm. if you just put a black and white filter on that, that could have yeah. been a hundred years ago. And it yes. seems so unlikely <laughs> that modern, the modern United Kingdom would mm. react like that, behave like that. What is it, do you think, that makes us so endlessly fascinated by the royal family? It's kind of primal. You can't help it. It's like... Um, women fall in love with a man and they immediately go, can I wash your socks and, and iron your shirt? There's something primal. No matter how feminist you are, you think, what am I doing? What, what am I doing that? And it, But it's that. It's something that just stirs something in our bloods and takes us right back through the thousands of years of British history, I think. And you're right, that black and white thing, you're absolutely right. I see that myself. And I was in London over the last couple of days flogging this book and I said to my friend, <laughs> look at this. How amazing that last weekend the atmosphere in London was all, whoa, and some of the flags are still up. But within two days, that atmosphere has gone, uh, again, you know. Yes, odd have... that. <laughs> yes, very odd that, indeed. Very bad news came straight afterwards. But I think the Queen is going to make her 75th anniversary, you know. I think she really will. And then she'll have to trump Paddington, because that was a stroke of genius, wasn't it? That was really lovely. And and actually, we should say, I thought Ben Wishaw, his, oh. little, his little line at the end saying thank you to her just broke my heart. I just Absolutely, your eyes filled up. And he, I mean, he's, well, casting him as Paddington was a bit of genius too, wasn't it? Lovely. 
I feel we've gone off piste, Fern. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I feel like I feel like we're just two people in a cafe just talking now. <laughs> we're not talking about. <laughs> we're not just talking about Paddington. Uh, listen, let's remind everybody: uh, the good serve by Fern Brittany is out now. Now out now in hardback. A pleasure as always to talk to you. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and congratulations. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. My love to Tina Brown. I want to read her book immediately. Okay. Okay. Will do. We'll bye, do. Take care. Bye. Bye. bye bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Right. Time to meet my second guest of the day. I mentioned her uh, earlier. Uh, she was the editor in chief of Tatler Vanity Fair, the New Yorker, uh, best selling author of the Diana Chronicles. And now she brings us the Palace Papers inside the House of Windsor, the truth and the turmoil. Her name is Tina Brown. Welcome, Tina. Well, good morning. Nice to be here. Uh, now, so this book, I mean, it, it sort of picks up um, at the end of Diana's life. That's where it comes right up to the, the present day. What was your sort of thinking when you started this book? What, what was, how, how far did you think the book would go? Well, I, you know, what I really wanted to do after having written about Diana was to then examine the kind of you know, scorched earth, if you like, left by the Diana years and how the royal family then sort of tried to get their mojo back. But in some ways, what they really wanted to do just was to sort of go back to being kind of boring, in a sense, pre-Diana. They wanted to sort of just get the drama out. And actually, one of the Queen's great mantras at that time, apparently at the palace, was never again, never again, by which she meant never again must we have, you know, a member of the family who is such a celebrity, has such a kind of, uh, wildly kind of global power base that essentially it kind of dwarfs the mission of the royal family. You know, she not that she wanted to suppress Diana, but that she just didn't want somebody in the family who didn't understand it was all about just supporting this structure, which is monarchy. You see, it's like that way when um, actors in soap operas get too famous, they get, they get fired because no one can be bigger <laughs> than the soap opera. Right. Um, uh, reading this book, it is such a deep dive and it is dense with detail. And I was reading it and I'm thinking, why am I finding this fascinating? There isn't another family on earth. Like, I don't want to know this much about my own family. Why, <laughs> why, why do you think we are so fascinated by the House of Windsor? Well, you know, frankly, it is the only soap opera we are all now watching, right, all over the world. It's like these personalities, they're self-replenishing. There's always a new character, always a new pop, plot line. I mean, just think, you know, in 10 years' time, it's all not going to be about Meghan and Harry. It's all going to be about who Prince George is dating, you know, who, who Princess Charlotte has her eye on. You know, it's going to be the characters will just keep on giving. And, you know, they're people we all know, and we just simply can't stop hearing about them. And because of some of the, the jobs you've had, you know, particularly I suppose something like Tatler, you've had a kind of a, a window in and in the book you talk about various occasions you've been present at. Having that sort of access, having a, a, a sort of a little, a closer look, does it make them more fascinating or less fascinating? Well, more, in a way... Well, sort of both, really. I mean, I did know get to know Princess Diana a bit and actually had lunch with her about six weeks before she died when she came to New York. And the interesting thing about Diana was just how much more stunning she was, you know, in off camera even than on camera. You know, largely, I think, because she had this incredible, you know, 
height. You know, she was so tall. She was at a supermodel tall and she had this incredible skin, you know, this uh, peachy skin with these limpid blue eyes. And it was an absolute, you know, stunning package when you met her in person. So she always fascinated me. But, you know, just they've all tried. They still really are trying to kind of get over this comet that rocks through the family. And of course, the irony, as I write about in the Palace Papers, is just when they feel everything is going swimmingly, you know, William and Kate, Harry is a great hero in Afghanistan, the Queen just went to Ireland, everything is going wonderfully. The Olympics, where the Queen appears, you know, with James Bond. I mean, that was like an amazing sort of seven-year kind of window between 2011 and sort of 2000 and, and, and sort of 19. And then, of course, it all goes completely pear-shaped. Uh, firstly, when Megxit happens and, and it all, you know, Megan turns out to hate it every second of being there. And secondly, you know, when Prince Andrew goes absolutely, uh, you know, straps on a suicide vest and appears on Emily Maitlis's show. Yes. I mean, funny enough, I was I was talking to Fern Britton about this earlier because she's written a book about um, Marion Crawford, who gets a, yes. a brief mention in your book. Um, yes. That, that they never seem to learn their lesson. They're constantly uh, playing with matches and getting burnt. It's true. It's absolutely stunning, isn't it? I mean, the first interview that Charles did with uh, Jonathan Dimbleby when he admitted to being unfaithful with Camilla was an appalling mistake. <laughs> then, of course, you have Diana sitting down with Bashir and that has gone on, rocked the world ever since, 25 years. And, you know, then we get, uh, you know, Andrew with Emily Maitlis and, and, and Oprah with Harry and Meghan, which frankly, you know, did nothing to help family relations, that's for sure. And, you know, it's totally understandable that Harry and William would hate the, the press and the media because of w- what they perceive that they did to, to yeah. their mother. But in the book, you're, you, you are very good at talking about how Diana courted so much of that, that she went out of her way to get that attention. Well, she did. I mean, there really was a mixed story there, much less... Uh, in a sense, you know, it's become too flat a storyline. You know, uh, Diana was, you know, was hounded to her death by the press. She was. I mean, that terrible, terrible night in Paris. I mean, there's no doubt that she was suffered greatly at the hands of the very abusive paparazzi, just as Prince Harry suffered horribly from hackers and stalkers and so forth. So the press, have, you know, play an ugly role, actually, in this story. But nonetheless... Diana did also love to tip the press off when she was wanting to really, in a sense, have images that would help her send a message to Charles, you know, look, I'm making you jealous. Or, you know, when she was wanting, when she was madly in love with Dr. Hasnat Khan and she wanted to make him jealous and she would pose, you know, with with, uh, Dodi Al-Fayed. You know, Diana was often tipping the press off and saying, you know, you'll get a great picture if you come to X place at X time. And that, of course, only really emerged later, but it was very much true. And of course, there is that contrast is the family who are, you know, they're born into it and good luck to you all. And then there are these people who who join, uh, you know, and in, in this story, it, it's Kate and Megan. How sympathetic are you to them? Or do you kind of think, hey, you know, make your bed? Well, I think it's really difficult to marry into that family. I mean, there's absolutely, I mean, I think it's kind of monstrously difficult. Uh, and actually, you know, William actually wanted, did have Kate wait 10 years before he finally proposed. And I think actually he was smart to do so because basically all that time he was saying, are you sure you want to be part of this? You know, now you're seeing it up close. Are you really sure you want to do this? Because in some ways it's a bit like the sort of, uh, you know, secular version of taking the veil. You know, you, you sort of have to subsume yourself 
to essentially an unremitting life of, you know, these extraordinarily, a lot of the time, arduous and dull uh, engagements that you have to do. And it's not like a job where you can think, well, I'll do this for seven years and then I'll opt out. You know, once you've done it, once you've taken it on, you're stuck really forever. A lot of perks, of course, a lot of rewards, a lot of marvelous things happen to you. You have a huge platform, you have wonderful places to live, etc. But you do not have your freedom and you do not have your voice. And so when Megan, I understand why Megan absolutely decided that she hated it pretty quickly. I guess the, the puzzling part is that she didn't really spend any time investigating what was ahead of her because it was all there to know. But in a sense, perhaps she was, you know, perhaps she was so madly in love, she didn't want to know. But certainly she could have known had she asked uh, and probably, I mean, surely would have just would have decided that this would not be for her because it was absolutely against everything she'd always really wanted to do. Megan wanted to be a kind of global humanitarian superstar voice. And that wasn't going to be an option if she married the sixth in line to the throne and had to do a lot of sort of opening of local hospitals. It was not the gig. When it came to kind of getting your your forest of facts and all your dense detail, obviously there's there's some memoirs and things like that. But then who did you talk to? Who were your well, sources from inside? Well, multiple sources, but I'm afraid... The best ones I can't name, you know, I mean, a lot of people involved at the palace did talk to me, but, you know, they always demand that they want to be off the record. So uh, I got close in, but uh, would prefer not to say. No, no, obviously. But I mean, why did they talk to you? Well, I think there was a desire to see the truth. You know, I mean, obviously there are multiple royal reporters. I mean, having been, you know, the editor of the New Yorker, Vanity Fair and so on, and written the Diana Chronicles, I guess they felt that, you know, I'd shown uh, uh, in my life, you know, a journalistic accuracy that uh, was worth complying with. I mean, uh, and, you know, I mean, there's an eagerness, I think, to just tell it as it was, you know, I mean, there's so many lies. I mean, one of the things that you discover when you're writing a book like this is pretty much everything you read (laughs) turns out not to be true. I mean, there's so much uh, uh, in you know misinformation, if you like, about the royals, because people, a lot of people who write about them with apparent knowledge, you know, actually don't have any real close access. So you know, a lot of the time, might be sort of setting forth on some something I assume will be true, but actually turn out not to be. So I was very glad of those people in the palace who who felt it was worth talking to me and actually telling me, uh, answering my questions about get so I could get things right. I think they sensed I wanted to get it right. And do you think that some of those people who spoke to you? kind of got the nod from their bosses, actual family members, to say, yes, please, please steer a narrative in this direction. Please get Tina to to right this wrong. <laughs> no, I, you know, I actually think they are judicious enough to know. I mean, you know, I don't think there's any particular uh, sort of thing nefarious behind it. They just know uh, what's true and what isn't. You know, so if somebody wants to ask them and, and they feel that it's worth complying they're gonna they're gonna tell you I, d- I didn't feel that I was being lied to um at the same time you know had they had to be on the record you know they may not have said quite a lot of the frank things that they said to me and I understand that you know I mean they protecting their their names means that they could be much more candid and I didn't want to write a book you know if, if you do an official biography where you say okay I really want to make this the official biography then, of course, you're going to have a book that might really be end up being extremely whitewashed and extremely kind of eye candy-ish. And I, I don't write those kind of things. You know, I'm a, I'm a journalist who likes to uh, get in and, 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 and call it as I want. I don't want to have anything that's been uh, censored or, or battlerized. And yet you can kind of understand uh, Harry and Meghan's frustration, I suppose, because they, the, the palace do seem to have this thing of just 
taking it. You know, they're they're a bit sort of uh, punching bags, really, because they they're not proactive. And yet, in your book, you talk about all these people who are supposedly managing all of that for the various family members. Well, you know, there's two different sort of attitudes to this 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 press relations part, and it definitely is this kind of schism. You know, I mean, Megan, who comes out of a sort of Hollywood culture, if you like. Uh, where PRs do a lot of manage the coverage to, in, in such a kind of um, uh, sort of very, very kind of tepid way. You know, I mean, frankly, celebrity coverage in America is really very uninquiring. And Harry, of course, who's very, very combative. I mean, he is on a warpath with the press. And I completely understand. I mean, when I did a deep dive into Harry's kind of background with the press, I really did come to understand why he's as livid about it as he is. Because, I mean, he really... He was tormented as, a, as an adolescent, you know, when he's a young man, just trying to be himself, you know, every time he went to a nightclub or something, somebody was lying in wait, wanting to get a picture of him looking completely drunk. He was, he was caricatured as the sort of the problem child all the time. His girlfriends were, you know, phone hacked, stalked. I mean, Chelsea Davey, the young woman he dated, you know, uh, when he was about 18, 19, the young, uh, raised in, in, um, in Zimbabwe. I mean, she was uh, just a wonderful... Yeah, wonderful girl and she, you know she was she had her life was made an absolute misery she couldn't take it so harry kept losing girlfriends essentially over this press harassment so he got more and more angry about it but i think these days um what they don't understand i think is that the uh, t- going to war with the press long term is pretty much uh, a sort of uh, diminishing returns you know because at the end of the day it's i mean the press is 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 mighty you know i mean you can't really go to war with the whole of the British press. It's just, it, you know, it, it, it can't be won. And actually, you know, William is actually pretty successful, I think, in a, a kind of middle way with the press. He, he's lethal if you get it wrong and you libel him. I mean, lethal. And the press knows this. I mean, for instance, or if you do something that really transgresses. For instance, shortly after he married Kate, uh, a European magazine photographed her topless on a beach uh, on their private vacation in the Mediterranean. And he went absolutely ballistic, you know, and he pursued them for five years and he did get reparation for it. And uh, but he doesn't sue over everything. I mean, Harry and Meghan tend to sue about everything, it seems. And and I don't think that's necessarily a smart tactic. I think that William has it right. I mean, what the press know is do not push him, because if you do, he is going to go after you and he's going to win and he picks his battles very carefully. And very quickly, Tina, uh, is this the end of days? Will, you know, a a Charles, a a King William, will it see a kind of a a waning of the public support and interest? Well, clearly the Queen, no one is going to have the mystique of the Queen, let's face it. I mean, you know, 14 prime ministers, you know, her mystique, she's never given an interview in 70 years. I mean, the respect for her is just so ginormous. So, I mean, it's a hard act to follow, um, but I think that Charles is going to be a successful king. He will be a, a transitional king. I mean, he won't have the same uh, historical aroma, uh, you know, always been there kind of uh, uh, stature that the queen has had. But I think he'll, I think he's going to be a successful king. And I think Camilla at his side is, is enormously gracious. I mean, it's not going to have the length of, of the queen's reign, clearly. But in a sense, his role is to sort of get things in shape for William. And I think William and Kate have shown that they can, I think, be... Uh, you know, much respected, uh, uh, you know, Monarch and consort. You know, they've 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 done really well actually up to now, and um, I think there will be a lot of excitement when William and Kate take the throne. 
Well, it's a fascinating story. I, I could talk to you all day, but I mustn't. The Palace <laughs> Papers, the Palace Papers inside the House of Windsor, the truth and the turmoil is out now. Tina Brown, thank you so much for joining thank us today. Thank you so much, Graham. All right, take bye. care of yourself. Bye, bye-bye. Still to come, we'll be chatting to Jenny Eclair about all the things that are on her plate. But first, we'll see if anyone could figure out the mystery voice in Guess the Guest. Guess. The, uh... uh the, um... Guest. Guest. Oh, yeah. Uh, very shortly, we'll find out if somebody's going to be walking away with a Graham Norton with Waitrose gift box containing uh, that brand of reusable hot drinks cup, the champagne, truffles, shortbread, balsamic vinegar, all sorts. Uh, the voice they're trying to identify is this one. I'm painfully aware of how short I am. And I'm five foot one, shy of five foot one. So I'm, I'm really aware of when I turn up to things. I just, I look like you can put me in your pocket, usually, once you watch it back on telly. And it just, I, there's something about, it never bothered me. My height never bothered me because I am from a long line of very short people, so... Yeah, or like, short line. Or a very <laughs> short line. <laughs> OK, let's go to the phones. Uh, first up, I think it's Joan. Hello, Joan. Hi, Graham. Hi, Joan. Where are you today? I am in um, Brentford in Essex. Very good. And what are you up to on this sunny Sunday? I've just come back from a dog walk. <laughs> oh, lovely. What what sort of dog? She's a schnoodle. Oh, Called Margo. She's a goat. Oh, how old is Margo? She's 18 months. Oh, lovely. Well, sadly, nothing for her in the Waitrose gift box. I'm sure she'll have a good old go and try and get some. But uh, let's see if you are going to be uh, winning the Waitrose gift box full of those goodies for you and Margot. Uh, who do you think that voice belongs to? I think it's Nadia Hussein who won um, Bake Off. Let's see if you're right. This is very tense. Very tense. Very tense. <laughs> oh, yes. I knew it was tense, and that's why there's a tension bed. Here we go. Oh. You're right! Yes, you are. Got it in one. Congratulations, Joan. <laughs> I know. Thank you, Graham. I know. It's been you like see, it was to you. It was worth ringing in, wasn't it? It was worth ringing in. And uh, tell me this. Um, uh, what have you got planned for the rest of the day? Go up for lunch now. <laughs> yes, you might as well. <laughs> Feeling lucky, i i would I would get down. Yes. To, I would get down to the petrol station and play the lottery. Uh, obviously, your luck is in today, Joan. Uh, Thank you, Graham. All right, take care of yourself, Joan. Bye. Congratulations. Thanks, bye. <laughs> bye. 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 The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Hello, you've Graham been Norton. busy. Graham Norton, you sound cheerful this morning. I've been listening in. I totally agree with you about Harry Styles. I'm glad he's famous. I really like him. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Why Why isn't we it? don't hate him? We should hate so him. Because so jealous and bitter and resentful of everybody else. You know, yes. but he, he can stay. No, I tell you the other person who's say, who suits being famous, you, I don't think you'd have been very good at not being famous. I think you really, really suit being, you know, successful. I, I wouldn't like to meet you if you hadn't made it. Do you know what I mean? Well, I, I must say, towards really the end... Suit it. Towards the end of my catering career, I had turned... <laughs> it had turned quite dark. Yeah, I, that's what I mean. And But I think you're very relaxed with it. That's that's what I'm trying to say. Not that... I just think it suits you, and I don't think it sent you mad. 
Well, I'm, I, I look at you. Because I'm crazy. Well, I look at you and uh, you are a trailblazer. You're a couple of years ahead of me. Like, I, I, I think only two. I think you're only no, two years three, ahead of me. It's three. I've just checked you on Wikipedia because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> mind you, who knows of Wikipedia? But you're a 59, your birthday's uh, 63 and I'm 1960. So oh, okay. 59 yeah. I'm I this is the this is the that sweet spot so what was it like because basically you've got a tour you're doing a tour and it's called yeah. 60 and, yes. uh, and did it you hit you like a ton of bricks for my audience 60 <laughs> can you hear it in the back um yeah it's called 60 it's about I mean I'm 62 now let's not fudge this um but I I I, I it was the first big birthday that I kind of was a bit reluctant about I've never really fussed about that sort of thing, but 60, it's a bit like the beginning of the last chapter, isn't it? You just go, oh, right, you know, I've got no more excuses. Um, I should know who I am and what I do now at 60, because this is, you know, it's it's about time I sorted myself out. I also really, uh, all this is in the show about how I really enjoyed menopause. And, you know, you have to say goodbye. So you can't cling to that excuse forever, you know, for being hysterical and shoplifting. <laughs> you just can't. So, uh, you know, at 60, you're kind of meant to be an adult. And it's about, you know, this sort of not being ready for it, not, you know, not really wanting to. It's resisting it, getting used to it, and then deciding that actually being in the 60s is, as you said earlier, you know, one of life's sweet spots. And a lot of silver linings. And here's the thing, though, you know, clearly we were going to talk about them in a minute. You you, you do uh, TV presenting. You're a very successful writer. So the stand-up tour, you know, if you weren't enjoying it, I'm guessing you wouldn't have to do it. So there's something in you. You you still love touring, I'm guessing. Uh, well, I'm built for touring. I've got quite a sturdy bladder and I've got a tapestry to finish. I think that's what you <laughs> need for touring. To be quite honest, you know, if I didn't love it, I'd do an ABBA if I could afford to. I'd send an avatar out. You know, that's the <laughs> ultimate, isn't it? Trouble is, they're very expensive, those avatars. And uh, I think I'd have to send out a sort of glove puppet or something like that instead of me. And then who'd operate it? I'd be down on my knees operating my own glove puppet, wouldn't I? I might as well do it myself. It's sort of, you know... <laughs> Do you do you tour differently now? You know, you know. When do you think back to the olden days and uh, and <laughs> what it was like? What, what it was like then? Well, I don't go out after anymore. You know, there's sort of like, uh, you know, there's, there's there was there were cities you'd go to like Liverpool or you know places in Ireland, and you'd end up at some some place called Lily's Bordello or something. <laughs> you know, next thing you knew, it was five o'clock in the morning. Um, but and that certainly doesn't happen anymore. You know, I sort of finish by 10 and um you know i either get driven home or or to the nearest uh, you know the hotels aren't very glamorous because hotel the thing about touring now is to keep your ticket prices low and i am cheap graham i am cheap my tickets at 20 <laughs> quid i just want to get that because everyone's so skint at the moment and food prices are so listen coming to see me uh in this this autumn it'll be cheaper than doing your own heating at home uh, it's twenty quid for you know. Get <laughs> that's a very that can I just that's a very good sell. That is a very yeah, good and sell. you'll be it's warm. cheaper than being at home. Yeah, yeah. there's loads of nice cuddly middle aged women. It'd be hot in there. You'll be able to take your cardio off for once. <laughs> Um, and has your audience grown with you? Uh, do you, you know, or because it, be- yeah. 
But no, but, but because of doing the TV and stuff, do you find new people, people discovering no. you for the first time? No. no okay, not, fair no, enough. Not at all. I, mean, it, I look out and it's like a sort of an audience that went in to see the Osmonds in 1974 that never got out their seats. You know, it's that sort of thing, isn't it? Uh, and I'm very grateful because it's a bit like I went to an all girls school and I think I have an all girls school mentality, really. I don't think that's ever left me. So it is like showing off in front of your mates. Um, and that's how it feels. It feels like a sort of school reunion and everyone's a bit <laughs> a bit giggly, you know. It's nice. It's really nice. I feel I feel uh, comforted by the audience, very, very comforted and very secure with them. And tell me this, you are now uh, seeking out a new audience because you've gone young adult. Your latest book oh, is yes. young... Your latest book is Young Adult, The Writing on the Wall. And this is a young adult novel. So how did that come about? Because, it, you know, you've had such huge success with your... Uh, I don't, grown-up how, books. How, yeah, gr- <laughs> well, I don't know. I was going to think, what are they called? Real novels? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it is it is a bit of a change for me. I, I was I was approached by um, a publishing company who sort of uh, wanted a, a, a kind of to experiment with some new names doing uh, young adult fiction. And um, I just, when I was in lockdown, I was, you know how mad it was? I was a, I wrote this book in lockdown. It was very comforting because it's a time travel piece. It's about two teenage girls. They're both 15 and they share the same bedroom, but in different millenniums. So ooh. one of them... Ooh, do, do you wish you'd thought of that there? No, that is... Ooh. Honestly, Jenny, that's such a good idea. <laughs> yeah, and they uh, one sort of slept there in 1975 and that uh, that's Helena and she's very much based on me. And I do use the house that I grew up in as a sort of template for, for you know, the geography of this house. And then the, the nowadays girl, Hermione, <clears throat> has moved up north to live with her mum's new boyfriend. And he said as a sort of sweetener, you know, you can dec- redecorate the bedroom. So she peels back the wallpaper and she finds a sort of introduction to Helena, who's written on the wall, you know, hi, my name's Helena and all this sort of thing. And they meet. There's a, a there's a sort of trick to how they meet. And, and that takes a couple of, of uh, times for it to happen for uh, the the reader to, to understand how they managed to um, Hermione manages to travel back to 1975. But basically, I spent. Uh, quite a few months writing this book, living in 1975, which is a very comforting thing to do in the middle of a pandemic, to just go back to this. I mean, it wasn't the hot summer, that was 1976, you know, but it was it was that sort of, there's quite a bit of a rosy glow to my sort of summer of being 15. It's a very potent time. And I don't think that changes. It doesn't matter whether it's now or then. <clears throat> I think being 15 is a very specific age. But also, your, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the jokes you would normally make are about shared references and shared memories and things like that. But you're now writing for readers who won't know those things. So was that a kind of a big shift in your head? There, yes, there. Uh, you, I had to be careful not to overload it. But there's, I think, well, I'm hope that for the nowadays teenagers, it'll be interesting to sort of see what the uh, political climate, what the sexual political climate was like in 1975, and how you know, teenagers like me were kind of basted in sexism. We were like little fat chickens, just on a rotisserie of sexism, really. That's, we just rolled around being basted in sexism. And, you know, just differences, like everybody smoked. I mean, everybody in my teenage years smoked. So Hermione, you know, gets on a bus and she just cannot understand 
you know, she's a London teenager. Why is everybody smoking? It can't be that different in the North, you know. And um, and then she realises when uh, Helena gets a copy of Jackie magazine out of her bag with a date on it that something very strange has happened. Um, but it Was is... Kathy and- uh, yes, Kathy and Claire do feature. Kathy yes. and Claire, that's right. Yes. yes, they were the agony arts in Jackie magazine, yes. which was kind of my teenage um, generation's Bible, really. So uh, Helena, who's the 1975 teenager, writes to Kathy and Claire every time she has a problem. She can, she, she kind of writes to Kathy and Claire, and and signs herself off sad and freckly. So Jenny, the tour yes. we were talking about, the sixty, that's not on at the moment. No, it's not on the moment. <laughs> Don't do that to me. I'm now checking my diary thinking, oh, I should be in Aberdeen. <laughs> uh, no, it starts in September. I'm having a hiatus. Um, that uh, T-Rex, tell you who the his songs, Harry Styles. Because you no, know, we were saying we like him, but I'm not that sure about his music, but he needs to dig out old uh, T-Rex or the old ones because he'd suit those. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, I've got to stop <laughs> thinking about his career and worry about my own. Yes, <laughs> yes he, really. Um, the tour, I think he's all right. Tour starts in September. I did, I managed to do, I think I've done about 60 dates. We started back up last September um, and I dodged, I dodged the virus. I mean, my tour manager and I just sort of lived in this little bubble of just the two of us in the tour car, very smelly by the end of it. I'm a slob in a car. I don't know what you're like. I'm, uh, you know, oh dear, I'm like <laughs> I think all rules, all rules are off in a car, aren't they? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and, and shoes. And... Um, so, uh, yeah, we, I dodged the, the virus, dodged the virus. And then um, I had a, a bit of a break for, for to do some telework uh, to do to film the series Draws Off for Channel 4. And then I finished off the, um, the tour and I finished on the very last day of March. I got Corona on the 1st of April. It was like a sort of classic <laughs> April Fool's Day. You know, it's the day where they just decided no more rules and all that kind of thing and no more free testing. But fortunately, I had a packet of, um, you know, the lateral flow thing. And I just thought, because it was meant to be going to Stockholm the next day. I felt ghastly, Graham. I did. I felt, oh, God. Oh, did it hit you hard? No, not really. I just felt, I thought, why do I feel so rubbish? I I felt hungover. And I'd only had two large glasses of wine. And I just thought, I don't deserve to feel this bad. And I just had an instinct. I thought, I've got to check. I've got to check. And, And then, you know. And it's such a silly thing to be surprised when those two lines pop up, you know, just, but it really, I sort of reeled back from it. I thought, really? And everyone's had it and all that sort of thing. But it just seemed sort of so, anyway, so I had to postpone Stockholm, but we managed to go. And it's all, I feel, you know, um, it was a relief to get it over and done with. And I was very, very lucky, very lucky indeed. Obviously, I was ja- I jabbed as many jabs as I was allowed. I'd have cubed up for more if they let you. But um, yeah, so I think, you know, se- this September, it will be sort of easier because I think people are, are feeling a bit more relaxed about going out and all that sort yeah. of thing. I mean, We're sort yeah, of thawing my- out, aren't we? Yeah. Yes. My audience particularly, uh, you know, risk averse. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of mask wearing early on in the tour. And I think that that will probably go by the board now. But, you know, whatever people, however people are comfortable, I'm comfortable. That's how I look at it. Um, but yeah, I do. I do. Re- do you do you not sometimes think, oh, I fancy getting a bit of a stand up show together and getting back out on the no. road? No, no. <laughs> I was surprised. Do you know what I thought last week? And I, I, I thought, well, the Queen is actually very funny. Do you see that sketch with Paddington and her timing? Yes. I thought she wants to get back out on the road with Paddington. That would be. <laughs> Now that would be a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, people would pay. They'd pay more than twenty quid for that. 
<laughs> yeah, even I would. <laughs> um, so you're doing sixty. You're coming back in September. I mean, sixty no longer true. But uh, you're yeah. doing, do do you see a day? Do you see a day when you will be uh, promoting a show called Seventy? What when when will what would make you what would make you kind of go? You know what? This is unseemly now. <laughs> It's been unseemly for years. I've never been seemly. There's never been a moment of seemliness. Um, you, were, I, you were forward planning. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the thing is, I haven't got a job. I haven't got a pension. Um, so I, I do sort of have to keep going a bit. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've got savings. Don't worry about me. I, don't, um, I do have this bucket thing on, on, on stage with me. And um, it's for people to put uh, their bucket list dreams in. Uh, but I have occasionally been on train stations with a bucket and it does look like I've been collecting you know sort of for my own charity slightly um but... <laughs> poor Jenny <laughs> poor Jenny did you, did you see Jenny and Claire clap them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. with her red her tragic red red bucket or else I, when I was doing the tryout shows and I was traveling on uh London public transport you know there's nothing like seeing an older woman with a bucket on a tube and people looking at it say, oh, she's gone in to clean the offices. She's got, she's got a cleaning shift. She's got a bucket and she's on her way. Um, but I, you know, I am a, 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 you know, I do like live performing. I like live performance for my audience very much because as I say, we know each other. We know each other really well. They know what to expect. It's not like I have to, like the old days, we had to come out and, persuade people to like you yes that was hard because loads of people hated my guts and it was very very um it was scary back in the early days you know the sort of late night gigs and the 20 minute slots and the waiting to go on and you know there was no you didn't have a smartphone you'd had an a to z and i've always been short-sighted i I just seemed to just be lost constantly in the crack of the a to z yeah, I mean, I think back, how did I get to gigs? I couldn't drive. And no. you know, I've, I remember kind of going through South London on buses and things. I was like, that's I where I live. I couldn't <laughs> yes, do that I'm now. really good on South London buses. I'm an absolute <laughs> ace. I mean, that was the other thing about this, the turning 60, is that the joy of turning 60 in London. And this will this will annoy people who don't live in London. But, you know, we've got to have some perks. Um, you get your over 60s oyster card. I don't know whether you're aware of this. If you're a London I... resident, right? So it's free. It's for free on buses and tubes after rush hour. Um, and I got that the day of lockdown. The day just when I was thinking, <laughs> well, you know, because one of my birthday treats to myself was I've never been all the way to Penge on the one seven six bus, and I was going <laughs> to do that, and I couldn't. I couldn't go. They couldn't go anywhere. No, no. and there's me with this, with this over sixties oyster card shaking my fist. <laughs> at the buses all just it was key workers only. <laughs> oh, there we go. Uh, very quickly, we must say that people can see you on TV, uh, Drawers Off, Channel 4. Yes. It's season two. Uh, third episode is, is it tomorrow night? No, it's the third week. It's every night, Graham. Well, of I'm, course it's, uh, yeah, well, that's it's, right, you do it. It's every night over the week. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, I'm, yes, yes, I'm, yes. I'm claiming as much space as I possibly can. Um, it's uh, every weekday at 5.30 and it's live a life mo- uh, life model uh, drawing. So it's, uh, there's a professional life model and that's the big difference between series one and two 
Uh, we now have professional live models who are able to stand for 90 minutes. And we've got a really, really strong uh, load of contestants this uh, this year. Really, re there's some wonderful art coming out. I'm really, really delighted <laughs> with what people are doing. I thought I thought you were going to say really strong life models. We've got no, some really some strong, strong no, some life strong, models. No, there's a lot of yeah. There's there are some really strong life models, but there's also some really strong um, artwork going on. So that's just that's my joy seeing all that. I love being in an art studio. It's my thing. And also, what I think it's such a beautiful show because it's not you imagine. You know, on paper it sounds quite pervy and a bit kind of. You know, that bit of, it sounds that side of Channel 4. And actually, it's not that side of Channel 4 at all. It's, it's, it's really the, it's beautiful. Really it's really the thing. other side of Channel 4. <laughs> sort of, yeah. you know, but I'm there. So, and I don't think I'm very perfect because I'm, you know, me, I'm just not interested. I'm chalk from the waist down. So, you know, <laughs> I, there's no sort of leering from me at anything. You know, I think if you had people who are still interested in that sort of thing, who are having a peek and all that, you know, it wouldn't be very attractive, but it genuinely is all about the art. And that really does come across. I think this week we've got someone who doesn't even paint. She collages. It's the most extraordinary thing to watch somebody with a pile of ripped up paper in 90 minutes, suddenly <laughs> turn a blank piece of paper into a, a, the human form with torn up tissue. It's extraordinary. People are so that talented. That does sound amazing. Yeah, Amazing. there is so uh, much talent out there. And that's Drawers Off, continuing tomorrow night on Channel 4 at 5.30. Uh, the book, Writing on the Wall, is out the 23rd of June. And for the tour, for information and dates on 60, uh, you can go to jennyeclair.com. Jenny, thank you so much for giving up uh, some of your Sunday for us. Enjoy the rest of your day is and good Sunday? luck with everything. <laughs> Apparently it is. There we go. <laughs> it's really, really lovely to talk to you, as it always is. All my love to you, Graham, as ever. All right. Same to you, darling. Take care. Take Not care. Bye-bye. 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 Boom. Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. And hey, have you clicked that follow button on our socials? If not, you're missing out on all the behind-the-scenes action from the kitchen to the studio. Just look up at Virgin Radio UK on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Speak to you soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio.